Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin Mancini. I am one of your co-hosts here, and I am very happy to welcome one of my other co-hosts. He is the podcast editor for thepopbreak.com, as well as one of the hosts for the TV Break podcast, Alex Marcus. Hello, Alex. Hey, Justin. How's it going? I appreciate that you didn't call me lady, because otherwise we would have had a major problem on our hands. Oh, no. <laughs> we wouldn't want that. <laughs> Uh, well, we are very happy to have you, Alex. Unfortunately, we do not have our other typical co-host, Noah France, uh, with us. He is not able to join us on this episode. Um, but we do have a very special guest because this is one of our flashback series of of episodes where we talk to people that uh, we know and respect and admire for their opinions on film and other things and uh, ask them about their favorite films. So uh, we are very happy to have with us Mike Schindler. He is the host of Film Damage and Training Montage podcasts. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Um, This is actually... As as I have said to many of our uh, guests on here, uh, I'm somewhat familiar with you in the sense that I've heard you on other podcasts, <laughs> but have yet to do a podcast with you directly. So uh, so very happy to get that chance. Oh, likewise. Um, and Mike, you have chosen for us uh, for this episode, Magnolia, the 1999 film from Paul Thomas Anderson. Um I I'm gonna, just going to kind of start this out by asking you what has been your experience with this film and and what has it what was the, kind of the first time that you remember seeing it and then what has it meant to you over the years? Yeah, so you know I, I'm sure you get this a lot. I mean it's cliche, but it's true, right? The 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 best movie you've ever seen is the one that you saw when you were 18 years old am i right <laughs> i mean so for me Pretty it was much. 19 <laughs> for me it was 19 with magnolia this is when the, this movie came out and uh but i saw boogie nights when i was 18 and i sort of became obsessed with that movie uh, after seeing it on home video uh, like i think the day it was released and uh just became obsessed with all things Paul Thomas Anderson, and there wasn't much at that point in time. So, of course, I heard that he was working on this new movie, Magnolia, and I was just following that religiously. Uh, I was working at a, a movie theater at the time, and, you know, it's, it, when I heard, like, oh, we put a trailer on Detroit Rock City. Okay, well, I got to go in and see Detroit Rock City to see this trailer and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, as it was, the release date was approaching, I think it came out on December 17th in New York and L.A. Um, and then it wasn't scheduled to come out in Chicago, where where I am, until the end of January, which was kind of a bummer. And I was on uh, Cigarettes and Coffee, uh, the the Paul Thomas Anderson fan website uh, back in the day, you know, on a daily basis. And I saw a thing that, that said that they were showing Magnolia the week before it came out in L.A., at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood and that Paul Thomas Anderson was going to be there for a Q and a after the movie and everything. And I was like, man, I would love to go there. I, I would love that so much. And I just kind of 
you know, at the time I was in film school and all that stuff, I had never been to L.A. 19 years old. And I just kind of offhandedly said to my mom, like, hey, you want to go to L.A. to see uh, Magnolia? And she's like, no. But then, like, she, I guess, thought about it or something and was like, you know, that would be kind of cool if, like, you and your dad and your grandpa went to L.A. and just kind of, like, hung out, saw the town and saw this movie. And I'm like, yes, it would be. And we did it, you know. So and and that that screening, it, it was it was for like a, a show on the independent film channel. He was interviewed by uh, Elvis Mitchell. And wow. you can still find clips of it. There's so many like famous quotes and stories from Paul Thomas Anderson that came from that interview. And you can actually see my arm in one shot. But <laughs> I, I was there and that was the first time I saw it. It was, you know. The Egyptian is like one of the best theaters in the world and everything. The presentation was pristine. And, uh, you know, I mean, the the deck was definitely stacked in Magnolia's favor. But, yeah, I've loved it ever since that screening, of course. That's incredible. Wow. To see this movie with your grandpa and your father also is just oh, really. Yeah. <laughs> but they both liked it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like my grandpa just kept on saying, like, the guy who made this is 29 years old. Like that's the guy who made this movie. Like, how does that happen? You know? Yeah. But I think, I think only a 29 year old could have made this movie to be honest. So that's not, not to go on too much of a tangent, but that's not the same interview where he talks about how he quit film school because he used a script from David Mamet. Yes, it is that one. It is. Oh, okay. It is that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all on YouTube in little bits and pieces, but yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So was this a six-hour event between the movie and the Q&A? <laughs> <laughs> no, the Q&A was only about half an hour, but it was eventful. Like, at one point, he's like, I'm sorry, I need to just smoke. And he, like, takes out a cigarette <laughs> and starts smoking on stage and everything. Like, Ricky Jay was in the back, like, yelling things at him. It, it was – I think they were in kind of a celebratory mood because the world premiere was the night before. So, you know – Okay. They're kind of doing their victory lap at this point. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty great. Have How many do you like? Do you have an estimate? Like how many times have you seen it since? Is it something that you watch like annually or is it just something you return to every once in a while? Uh, at the time I saw it, uh, like I think I saw it seven times in the theater, you know. Oh, wow. So 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 that was, you know, and then when it comes out on DVD, a Blu-ray, all that stuff. But in recent years, I've really kind of like cut back on that sort of thing. Um, and especially with movies like Magnolia, I try to sort of like limit the, the you know, like like there's this thing where like, Tarantino talks about how he's only seen Fight Club once because mm. it was such an amazing experience that he doesn't want to dilute that. He wants to save it for like very special occasions. And and I kind of find that like myself doing that with like movies that I love, like waiting as long as I can to watch them. And then, you know, just really kind of like having this amazing time watching it as, as much as I can with fresh eyes. And because of that, I, I've and, and also because it's three hours long, I've only seen it, you know, like a couple times in the past, you know, four or five years, probably. I'll need yeah. to check Letterboxd and see what the exact uh, figure is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. What was it like revisiting it for this podcast? 
Well, it was cool. I mean, you know, right now we're in, you know, the middle of uh, PTA, you know, season, right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, it's I, I, I say this all the time, but it's like there's Paul Thomas Anderson movies and then there's everything else and everything else is just there to kill time until the new Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson movie. So, you know, I mean, I... I'm I'm wanting to go back and watch all of his movies, you know, in the lead up to Licorice Pizza. Um, so it was it was good to see it again. And I, I it's it's one of those things where I always go back and forth between this and Boogie Nights as to which is the better movie, which is my favorite. And mm. with this last viewing, I think it really kind of like sealed the the deal for me that this one is the better movie like it may not be as fun it may not be as watchable but there's a lot more going on in it and it's much more sort of skillfully made than boogie nights i mean not much more right i mean we're talking about two of the best movies ever made but yeah yeah it's true there's only one of them features albert alfred molina in a bathrobe though jamming out to some music so (laughs) that's true but at least he is in this one too you know he is yes as uh, as as, uh, the infamously named solomon solomon Mm -hmm. (laughs) yep what about for you alex what's what's been your familiarity with with this movie yeah, so I'm a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson's. Um, I really, obviously, respect him as a filmmaker a lot. Uh, and uh, But I feel like I came to him kind of late. I, I, around the same time that Mike came to him in terms of my age, but I'm about 10 years younger than you. So it was more kind of like in the afterglow of uh, There Will Be Blood, hearing so many people being like, this is, he's the best filmmaker alive. You have to see all mm-hmm. of his movies. Um, and I definitely, it took a while to catch up to Magnolia because it was just so long and it was so in- imposing. But when I finally did, it was definitely an experience. Um, and this is now my second time watching it. And I think that I appreciated it on a slightly different level um, this time around. It's not one of my most favorite uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies, unfortunately. Um, but I felt like watching it a second time, there were so many individual hooks that I could see, like, really latching onto in this. And I feel like if he were to be interested in making a movie like this today, uh, he's been so narrow in his focus for so long. This is really his period of just kind of, like, telling very intimate, smaller stories. Um, and I'd be curious what Paul Thomas Anderson today would do with the tapestry of characters that he presented with us today in, in Magnolia back then. Um, mm. But but yeah, there's so... The thing that stands out the most though is just it has just an unbelievable cast just like a just like a slew of character actors just doing incredible work and it's a it's very long it's a little bit unfocused at times um for me but it just i i i've had this the same experience twice where like an hour into it i'm like i can't believe that where there's two hours left number one <laughs> and it really just feels like he there's no way he's gonna like be able to pull it all together and then by the end of the movie you know two hours later after that it's like he really does pull it all together in a pretty remarkable way um and he actually does this thing where he kind of pulls it together and then and then pulls it apart and then pulls it back together again and that's kind of remarkable um i can't really think of a lot of films that pull that off so i really respect it on that respect as well it it's interesting you know that you say that you know like there will be blood you know and and given given your age and everything and that i mean definitely tracks one of my 
professors at film school uh wrote an article in like the chicago tribune or something like that where he was talking about like the movies that he has seen influence students that have come through in his you know like 25 years you know teaching or whatever and it's interesting because like for for me for example like when i when i was his student like he did list like magnolia as one of the movies but then Mm -hmm. um you know 2007 he's got there will be blood and there were a number of filmmakers on there where like you know people said like well this is the greatest filmmaker ever and it's always because of a movie which is out you know at that particular time and on that list he had two people which did it twice one was paul thomas anderson for for those two movies and the other was uh christopher nolan first for memento which i i I was there for and and then later for dark knight you know it's just kind of interesting you know that there are two different paul thomas anderson's in a sense like there there are different phases to his career like you're saying and like if i was your age and i had seen there will be blood first i'm not convinced that i would be as obsessed with paul thomas anderson as i am today (laughs) like i think that i needed that that magnolia you know adrenaline infused craziness you know (laughs) (laughs) as much as i love there will be blood you know yeah. 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 I, yeah. It's it's true. And I mean, so many people in that in Magnolia are giving just really some of the best performances of their career. Like, I, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I still can't believe what Tom Cruise was willing to do in this movie. It's really remarkable mm. just how completely vanity free he is, given what a brand of actor he is. You know, <laughs> like he just is like, a, you know, he's an icon and you don't usually see him stripped down like that. And he did it during this particular era. He did it a couple of times, but to do it for someone like Paul Thomas Anderson, who yes, he had made Boogie Nights and he had made Heart Eight, but like still he's a pretty new director. He's under 30, you know? And like he, Tom Cruise was mostly doing it for these, like, you know, for Stanley Kubrick. Right. And so the fact that he had that much trust in the material and trust in Paul Thomas Anderson to just go for it like that, I think it's kind of remarkable as like a historical footnote in the first place. And it really, it's just, it's so core to that, to the film that it just, it really is. It's fantastic. You almost can't imagine someone else giving that performance and it being as effective. It's maybe, it might be my favorite Tom Cruise performance, honestly. (laughs) It's just, it's so, um, it's so not just it's raw, but it's also just like naked. Like, I mean, at one point, I guess literally, um, (laughs) but, but in a way that really is like works so much for like a star of his caliber, especially at that time. Um, you know, when he was like ruling the box office, um, yeah. So, yeah, I really I really do love that. But uh, uh, pivoting back a little bit, uh, I've kind of uh, been bearing the lead a little bit. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is, uh, if I haven't said on this podcast before, uh, is my favorite working filmmaker. <laughs> uh, a lot of the things that you were saying, Mike, I'm like, yep, yep. I'm just like <laughs> nodding along. <laughs> like, I can't wait till his next movie. It doesn't matter what it's about. I'm going to see it. I'm going to see it more than once in the theater. Like, it's just, these are just, this is just the way life is. And um, before, uh, I remember what, before Inherent Vice came out, I did um, a very kind of primitive <laughs> video log series of each of his 
films. I also tried to see like whatever shorts he had done as well. Yeah. Um, I do remember there was one I couldn't find, but I did like the stuff he did for like SNL, yeah. um, you know, with like Molly Shannon playing Anna Nicole Smith and all that great stuff. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's a real movie, by the way, that skyscraper thing that they're parodying. That's an actual yes. movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I need to see. I haven't seen. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like this was, I, so when I did that marathon, I had seen certain movies of his, um, this was one I had not seen before and I was really excited for, and I definitely was very, I was very impressed by it. And I kind of feel, <laughs> I kind of feel a little bit similar to the way I did at the time, which is that I'm very impressed by a lot. There are amazing moments in it for me and yet it never quite comes together in the way I want it to. Um, but there's just still so much there's so much ambition, but not just ambition, but like ambition that like really works like so many just so many great moments, so many great connections between characters like that really hit me this time is just recognizing the way that he's able to parallel a lot of these lives, even if they're going through very different things, they'll consciously or unconsciously say very similar things there's just a really interesting way in which all this is interwoven and interconnected. Um, that feels that much more moving because there's so many parts of it. And yet they all kind of are tying into similar ideas, um, which is something that you can do with ensemble filmmaking. That's, you know, is something that you don't really see maybe in some of his more recent stuff. So um yeah i i really do i think this is maybe a film that i more admire than love the way i do some of his other films uh i was a huge like phantom thread like i saw three times and it just gets better for me every time that i see it um and yeah it feels like there's different these were definitely different periods in his career but i'm glad that he has both and i i might be like a big fan of what he's doing now but i do really love a lot of the early stuff as well um and this and this movie like was really fun to revisit just to see what he was capable of doing and what he was allowed to do <laughs> i think yeah. as well um so yeah so it was a real treat to to watch this again and uh and and it's funny because you were saying before like boogie nights might be more watchable and maybe it's just that i've like been conditioned but like i was really um pleasantly surprised by how watchable this movie is <laughs> from scene to scene yeah you know i mean aside from the running time there there's really i mean and it flies you know i mean there there's like one little stretch and it you know maybe like two-thirds of the way through which is a little slow but for the most part i mean it, it does not feel like a three-hour movie at all you know it just there's always something crazy going on in it, you know, which is one of the reasons why I do think it's so watchable. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun, you know, on the whole, even though it is, you know, about some some rather serious stuff. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that I think that some of those segments worked a little bit better for me than others this time around. Um, but weirdly, I feel like they're not like that's it's different from those segments that worked better for me the first time that I saw it. Like, I feel like the first time I remember really being very moved by the William H. Macy um, section of the film, and this time I felt like I was really checking my watch with it. It felt like a little bit one note compared to some of the other more interesting things that were happening in the film. But I think just overall, it's just really remarkable 
how Paul Thomas Anderson is able to take all of these very different types of performers who are giving very different types of performances and make it all feel consistent inside of this giant work of of film that he's that he's doing and almost to the point where the contrasts are are in another world you could see those contrasts be feeling a little distracting but instead they feel very kind of like it's it's there to reflect the kind of spectrum of this world in a in a way you know like the kind of you know when you go from the julianne Moore very kind of melodramatic very histrionic uh, performance just iconic but <laughs> very big and Tom Cruise doing like 10 times bigger and then you have Philip Seymour Hoffman right next to him giving maybe his like most quiet and internalized performance and it all kind of works together like the three of them all share screen time together and you're just like how does that how is this working but it really does and I think it, it leads to some of the most moving parts of the whole film um and I really, the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman performance really jumped out to me this time around. I think that, um, especially in light of the last couple of years of the real world, you know, the kind of, and how uh, difficult and uh, how difficult it has been to have empathy and compassion for uh, certain people, especially as they are sick and dying, Um I don't know, it just really spoke to me in a really moving way. And he does, he makes such small moments feel so large in those performances, or in that performance. And it's really, really remarkable. I, that's the thing. I watched this movie a couple of days ago, and and Philip Seymour Hoffman is the thing that I'm thinking about the most um, afterwards. Uh, and, you know, second to probably Julianne Moore, who I think is just flawless. I, she just goes for it in a way that really shouldn't work because it's so big and theatrical and she just gets these monologues and she just completely devours them and is just so excellent. Do you, Mike, do you have some uh, favorite performances in, in this giant ensemble? I mean, I think that, that most of them are great, you know, just like you're saying. Um, I mean, Julianne Moore, I think, is you know, maybe the the best actor in the world, you know, so a uh, huge fan of, of what she was doing, Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. Um, but to me, I think kind of the standout of the movie and, and you know, kind of the, the heart of the movie and everything is Melora Walters uh, as Claudia. Um, she, she just kind of, I don't know, everything seems to kind of revolve around her. And, um, you know, I don't understand why she's not, in everything now right like i just rewatched the first venom and she's in that for like five minutes and i'm like what are you guys doing why why are these the roles that she's getting you know it doesn't make any oh, sense yeah. to me yeah. yeah is she does she play the yeah. homeless lady in venom yeah she does <laughs> it's like just so random like a, just a throwaway role it's like why isn't she the star of everything it doesn't make any sense why isn't she Venom? Exactly. Yeah. I would watch that movie <laughs> twice. Did either of you ever see um, a horror movie called Cam from a few years ago? No, no I didn't see it. Yeah. Okay. Because she, she pops up in there as the main character's mother, and she only has a few scenes, and she's so fantastic. Yeah. Like, you just, like, her character just, like, grows more and more sinister each time she appears. And I was just like, wow, like, there's not many actors who can do that kind of work. 
Um, and I, I agree with you, Mike. I like that was the performance that really stood out to me the first time I saw this. And she is the last shot of the movie. So yeah. it's clear that like that was definitely intentional. But um, I was really just I really especially this time loving every scene between her and John C. Riley. Um, I think those scenes work even if you haven't uh, had a coke addiction or maybe some assorted family history. I think because they're very much about like attempting to negotiate a relationship, recognizing that there's going to be negative stuff that happens and try attempting perhaps futilely to preempt it (laughs) and to um believe that by acknowledging that you're going to lie or bad things about your past are going to come up that that will somehow prevent um future pain and i think that's a negotiation that a lot of us make and we may or may not usually are not successful (laughs) in that and i just love that everything is out in the open for those two characters and i think that's a reflection on the film in general um, I, I, I like that, you know, we talk about this film, like being ambitious and going for it. And I think that's one of the things that it's like, it will put the text like pretty much in the mouths of the characters, which for, you know, movie, you know, screenwriting 101, you don't do that, right? You let the characters, you let the behavior, you let the, the visuals do that kind of work. And in this case, it's like, he's intentionally breaking the rules and yet somehow it works because everything is working in concert with one another um so i just i just really admired that and really admired the the work from both walters and riley um who i also think has some really he just has some some funny like reactions to things in this movie i mean the the face that he makes after he tries the coffee that Mulor walters whips up for him is hilarious um and yet he's also like he's also someone who just honestly like brought a tear to my eye when he's talking about being a good listener. And it's like in that moment, he is what Donnie has been talking about of like, I have so much love to give. And like, this is a way of showing it through this other character. So, um, yeah, I just love all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, Riley is great, you know, and I mean him with with Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, I mean, it's crazy to think that they have not really worked together since, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it does not compute. Apparently he's in licorice pizza, which is great. You know, can't wait for that. But that kind of sounds perfect. Like for him to have to, like if he was going to come back for anything, like him coming back for Paul Thomas Anderson doing like a 1970s coming of age story, that sounds like a perfect comeback for him. Yeah. Yeah. And originally he was supposed to be in in uh, Punch Drunk Love, and that didn't happen. I mean, the 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 alternate casting of Punch Drunk Love is like, I mean, all of his movies. The alternate casting is kind of like, I don't know if that would be better or worse, but it would be amazing, you know. And <laughs> yeah, in that one, the originally the Philip Seymour Hoffman character was going to be played by Sean Penn, and then the brothers, like who go, you know, chasing. Uh, Adam Sandler were going to be played right. by Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley, oh, and wow. I think and wow. I think Melora Walters was going to be the the sister. I mean that that <laughs> would have been amazing, but I mean hey, what we got wasn't yeah. too bad either. So you know, 
Yeah, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman yelling at him on the phone, though, is, like, iconic <laughs> cinema, so... That's true. To think of <laughs> I know, I wouldn't that. want to lose that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right, you're right. It makes it all worth it. Yeah, but I just, I think it's so interesting that this movie can contain the John C. Riley performance and, like, the Tom Cruise performance, right? Like, that it could be about yeah. both of these things and that they can speak together in this, in this way. Um, I do kind of feel like this movie... Um, doesn't always shine well when it spotlights its couple of people of color uh, in the film. I like. I don't think that he's quite had a handle on on the best way to um, to present uh, the people that um, John C. Riley was interacting with in that regard, um, especially that opening scene with him and the and the person who he ultimately arrests. Um, but I also I have a question for you guys about the opening of this film, like the opening opening. And I'm really curious how it worked for you guys on this viewing, at least, because for me, I was very surprised by it. I had completely forgotten how this movie opened. I don't know why, maybe because it's over three hours long. Um, But (laughs) and it really struck me as more of like a Wes Anderson opening than a Paul Thomas Anderson opening. And I'm curious, like what you guys think Hmm. about that for people who haven't seen the film. I don't know why you're listening, but if you haven't, it's just kind of like this series of shorts that are sort of interconnected or intercut rather about basically like the randomness of fate. And now this is going to be another story about the randomness of fate and how uh, these coincidences are not merely coincidences because we are all connected in this cosmic way. And it, it sets a tone for the film and it sets like a mission statement, but it's just so different from what I'm used to expecting from Paul Thomas Anderson. I guess I can see that, you know, like I could see Wes Anderson writing that scene, but I can't see anyone else aside from, you know, like maybe Scorsese, you know, filming it the way that that PTA films it. And that's the thing that I love about it. And that's the reason why I love that that opening so much, because he's just like, we are in a movie, you know, and it's like and we're not letting up like this little five minute thing is going to be absolutely exhausting and then you got another three hours. And <laughs> I, I just love that the way that he just goes for it. And I mean, that's the thing that really sort of like, um, I don't know, made me fall in love with with PTA with these early movies to begin. You know, it, when I first saw them, it, it wasn't the story. I mean, the stories are great. The performances are great. But I love the idea. I mean, that's not really what I'm looking for when I go see a movie. Uh, you know, this is going to sound very shallow, I guess, but, you know, like I'm much more gravitated to, let's say, like action movies. You know, I'm w- way, b- way more interested in the new Michael Bay movie than the new Wes Anderson movie. OK, I mean, that's just the way it is. And and it's not that I want to see action on screen, but I want to see movies which are made like action movies. I want to see that intimate drama, but done with all of the, you know, bombastic camera, you know, movement and, and, you know, frenetic editing, you know, the anamorphic 35 millimeter with the lens flares and all the rest of it, the, you know, tracking shots and the dolly shots and all that stuff. Like, that's what I want to see. It's like a celebration of of movies and doing like only what a movie can do, you know, whereas in recent years, he's sort of like, let's tone that. But I think after this movie, he's like, OK, I'm going a little too far. You know, less is more. 
let's 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 pull it back. But like Guillermo del Toro says, nope, less is not more. More is more. So you know what? Come on, PTA. Let's let's uh, let's bring some of this uh, this stuff back. I'm just yeah. saying. Although his follow up that... to this was Punch Drunk Love, and that is, I think that also has a lot of that sort of stuff that you're talking about. It's very kind of maximalist and and visually dynamic of a film. To some extent, but also, and I mean, I could be getting some of this wrong, just trying to piece it together from over the years. But as I understand it, he originally shot that movie like Magnolia and he got like halfway through it and he's like, this isn't working. And that's the point where he's like, let me pull it back. Let me be much more reserved. And he reshot like half the movie. Like so much so that originally he was planning on having a, an alternate cut of the movie, which had completely different footage because oh, wow. he had enough footage to actually make a oh, second wow. movie out of that. And that's what that that thing blossoms in blood like there's some alternate like takes on there and stuff like that. That's essentially what it like. He started doing it and then he's like. I literally just made this movie. I don't want to do the whole thing again, but he had <laughs> cut together a few scenes so that he put those on the DVD. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that that punch drunk love has that, but originally it was going to be full PTA, you know? And that's, wow. I, yeah. I want to see that so badly, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But that's just me. But that opening yeah. sequence, that, that to me, like that has that. This entire movie has that, but that really sets the tone. And it's like when you see all that and then like the music like crescendos and then goes into, you know, the opening title sequence, it's like, wow, like that's how you start a movie. You know, I mean, anytime that a movie does that, I'm just like, yes. Yeah. Like, like domino by tony scott you know that certainly <laughs> does that sure. i mean I, I just whenever a movie does or um six underground by michael bay you know that does that for sure i'm just like yes i am totally into this movie you know don't start slow and build your way up just like throw me into this thing and and don't let up you know yeah. Oh That's man, Domino. I saw Domino when I was in high school, and that idea I was like, movies can be like this. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it as an adult, and I thought the same thing. So. <laughs> uh, such a great movie. Yeah, that that opening definitely has so much confidence and and just so much momentum. I mean, I think I'm trying to like recall back to when I first saw it, and I remember. I think I remember being surprised feeling like oh okay like we're gonna get this opening about this druggist and how he was killed by the three people who share the same like the, the their names uh you know fit the the name of the pharmacy or whatever and like that's gonna be the opening no now we're gonna get this other story with Patton oswalt as the quote physical recreational and sporting sort unquote <laughs> um which i had to i was like wow i like i like that that's in the movie um and then Beyond that, getting the other, the suicide, well, the attempted suicide, which ends up being a homicide, I'm just like, is this going to end? Like, are we going to get to the movie at one point? Like, it just was like such a, it was just such a, a um, an avalanche that I never thought was going to end. And um, I, I think what's interesting to me about those, each of those three stories is I believe at least the second story, I didn't I didn't look at the other two, but at least the second story I've heard of as like an urban legend. Um, I think he was drawing from that maybe for the others as well, or it seems like that's a possibility. 
I think to to some degree, yeah. I know, like the second story, he he talked. I think that was at that thing that I went to that he talked about that, where like, yeah, you know, he's like, it doesn't really matter. Like he said that, like when they were shooting it, the guy flying the plane was like, "Do you want to see the thing which we use to pick up the water? Do you want to see what it looks like?" <laughs> and he's like, yeah. "Sure." And it's like the size of a Coke can, you know, it's like no one could get sucked <laughs> up into this thing. It's like it doesn't matter because it is just a, a story of, like, you know, these things, are they true or are they not true? I don't know. They happen all the time, you know. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. and it, it strikes me as like it doesn't matter if that's what we take as truth, right? I mean, and in the midst of this movie where you have um, a lot of, you know, where you have like, all this stuff happening that seems like it shouldn't happen, like like the 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 laws of nature have conspired so that it shouldn't, and yet somehow they do. Because there's, I think, with with these, maybe with the exception of that second story, uh, as you just said, Mike. But apart from that, like it strikes me that like this was technically possible. It's just very unlikely. Yeah. And it's almost like. I think a a large part of what this movie is doing, which is trying to say, like, this stuff can happen. The question is, does it like it's it's there? It's it's in reach, but it might be difficult to reach. And I think that's a I think that's a great way to open it by giving us that idea without really knowing what it's connected to in the larger world of this film. Yeah, it sets up the ending, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it, and I also what I'm curious about, and I feel like someone who's watched the film as many times as you have probably has an interesting answer to this question. But what do you think that that tone, that kind of mission statement about the 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 fact that these things, these impossible things are possible? Like, what does this this like series of coincidences being fate manifest? You know, what does that have to say? How does that speak to this sort of overwhelming theme of of toxic paternal figures that is just running through the entire film um through all of the different vignettes like what do you think that those two ideas um how are they speaking to each other i guess i guess i've never really thought to to see how how that those two things connect um i'd have to I'd have to think about that, you know, because I, I guess I, I usually think about it like in terms, especially in terms of like the ending or whatever, and in terms of like the coincidence of crossing paths and, and all that stuff. And, you know, like a series of unlikely events all, you know, but it feels like each of these stories is telling something um, which like in and of themselves is not fantastical right it is it's like everyday stuff and i there's certainly like i mean like the thing which i think he said probably a lot of times is it's not like these are like interweaving stories necessarily they're parallel stories right so like like thematically and and um emotionally or whatever they're sort of like all tracking in the same way even though they're all doing different things um but i mean you're certainly right that like there is a lot of portrayal of like really bad parenting and i don't i don't know what that means i mean i i guess part of it is just kind of like where he was at right at the time it's gotta be but Mm. there's gotta be something to be said for the fact that you know these two main 
character, these two main, you know, father figures who are like intertwined in the story have such, I guess, like similar paths. Right. Right. What what that says, I don't know what that says, but it's, it says something. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, what do you think? Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Sorry, could you say the question one more time? I think I have it, but <laughs> I, I just I'm sorry. Sure. I, I went off on a magnolia-like <laughs> tangent there. I apologize. No, but, you know. the question is just like, what does the the sort of uh, mission statement of the film about the improbability of and of fate, right? The unlikely but possibleness of fate. Um, how, what? How does that speak to this sort of? overbearing toxic paternal impact that is running throughout all of the vignettes in the film yeah um well i mean definitely in terms of in terms of like what these characters are dealing with especially the uh the father figures it strikes me that they're all kind of coming toward this reckoning and that's um, there's a distinct possibility that there's like no chance of redemption, no chance of reconciliation of any kind with their children. Um, and I think in that moment, that's when it can seem like that kind of impossibility that you're talking about. It can feel that way. And that's and that's the important thing, right, is if we see it that way, um, it doesn't matter whether it's actually possible or not. If we see it as impossible, that's what it is. It becomes a self-fulfilling prop, uh, prophecy. I think by putting it, by framing it as this kind of, you know, fate or nature or whatever you want to call it, um, it shows how it can feel. Um, and yet it's interesting to me that in, you know, with both of these father figures, like one one of these father figures like does have some moment of reconciliation, the Earl uh, Partridge character. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like the Jimmy Gator character of Philip Baker Hall does not. Um, and in fact, uh, dies, I guess, alone and horribly <laughs> based that, on what we see anyway. Uh, that, that was um, certainly the intent. He said like, you know, all the other characters have some sort of redeeming qualities, but that guy just, deserve to literally burn <laughs> so yeah so that's what he he did yeah. and it's another well, thing right I, another suicide attempt that is unsuccessful but still achieves the same end result oh it's true right. yeah yeah but i will say i think that the dis, the key distinction between philip baker hall's character and the other uh paternal figures in the film is that uh he does not seek um, forgiveness he seeks absolution mm-hmm. right he wants he wants his daughter to let go of the past without admitting what he did even in the confrontation with his wife he refuses to fully acknowledge what happened whereas everyone else in the film seems to have some moment of actual contrition right um, yeah. the Jason Robards character you know he's in and out of consciousness but he does make a genuine attempt to reach out to his son because he knows that there's something left unsaid right and he gets to bear witness to that and he doesn't really get to give that like to to give that um sense of closure um in the way that maybe the tom cruise character would have hoped for but you can't watch that scene without feeling like there's just a tremendous amount of weight lifted off of Tom Cruise's character at the end of that 
a sequence. And similarly, I feel like all of the other paternal characters have that moment of contrition in a way that the Philip Seymour Hall, uh, Philip Baker Hall character does not. And um, and I think that's probably the key distinction why he does not get to uh, have a happier ending. But his victims, right, the wife and and the daughter, do get to have a moment of catharsis and closure and and hope of moving past yeah. what happened. And I think that that is also meaningful as well. So, but yeah, yeah I I'm... definitely I agree with what you guys are saying in terms of like what those two themes how they're speaking to each other. I do think that it's about setting the tone for how that um, the emotional state of trauma and what it does to people and how it feels so impossible. But that, as Justin said, that if you go, if that if you can make it through the other side, if you can believe that you can get through it, then you can, right? Even though it feels impossible in the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, like what you're saying, it, it, they really are like different sides of, of the same coin. It, it's almost and maybe that's the, the reason why he did it and had them so closely tied in terms of like those two characters. Right. Like the fact that they both work together and they're both dying of cancer and everything like that. And to say, like, you know, this can go one of two ways, depending on how. How I don't know willing to to seek uh forgiveness one may be i don't know if that makes any sense yeah uh, it absolutely yeah. does that's like one of the last quotes from um from uh, john c Riley's character that's the tough part what can we forgive and i don't think mm -hmm. that question's really answered but i think the i may if there is an answer it seems to be like well so, like sometimes you can <laughs> like and it's worth the try um yeah. so yeah yeah and that and i think that it is interesting to include the the contrasting ways that these stories can resolve because it does speak to the way that forgiveness is sometimes an act that you give to someone else and sometimes it's an act that you do for yourself right and so i think yeah. that there's a lot of that in there too the relief that um I think the the characters that are in the shadow of Philip Baker Hall, uh, the relief that they get is by being able to come together outside of his shadow, right? And and being able to find connection that's not related to him, that's not uh, poisoned by him. And there's a lot of power in that. And I think that that is something that really, you know, I think that that is one of the things in this film that really ages very well. Um, and makes it feel eternally relevant to just the human condition to speak very high-mindedly. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to ask you guys about so, like something that really jumped out to me watching it this time um, is that even though this is a film about people who are you know kind of like who are connected even in ways that they might not know you know or be aware of. Um, there is this thing that will happen um, where he'll basically like like a character will start speaking and they're monologuing and it should be very apparent that they're talking to other people or that other people are 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 there. Um, whether it's Jimmy Gators, the game show host, you know, where you have an audience, you have the contestants and all that, or Frank T.J. Mackey talking to his audience uh, of of um, 
you know, toxic men. Terrible men. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even like I, I, I was going to say incels, but like, no, these are people who like deliberately like they do interact with women and deliberately ruin their mm-hmm. lives. Like, do they? I think. Yeah, I'm, like I'm not sure if they actually do. Yeah, that's a good point. They're like, yeah, uh, I'm totally gonna go home and do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but what he'll do is like they'll start they'll start talking, but then he'll just like kind of come closer. It, like the camera will just keep going closer and closer in on them and almost isolate them to the point where it's almost like they're not monologuing anymore. It's almost like they're soliloquizing or soliloquizing. That's the verb, right? Um, yeah doing soliloquies and <laughs> i just that really hit me this time because it it it's fascinating to me if that's a film that's about um you know seeking redemption and forgiveness that there are these scenes of characters just kind of like recognizing seemingly recognizing in the moment just how alone they are and i was wondering what you guys thought of of some of those scenes yeah, I think that they, uh, I think that you you categorize them very well. I think that it's really about giving the audience an opportunity to see inside of these people's psyches, both in terms of how they're presenting to other people and also the gaps in those performances, like the characters' performances and what they say about who they are as, as people as well. And I think oftentimes like what they are not saying in those moments or what they don't realize they're communicating is oftentimes speaking far louder uh, and more impactful than what they are actually saying. Like the just, the, the just complete desperate need for validation that Tom Cruise has in his performance on stage is just so incredibly excellent um letting you know who this guy is and just also the shift in his performance from when he is starting out that interview and being super cocky Mm -hmm. and like i'm this amazing guy and this girl and i'm gonna totally win this girl over she can't even handle the fact that i'm here and i'm in my underwear and i'm just gonna like totally roll over her and then he she asks like the smallest question that gives the tiniest dent in his armor and he completely dissembles and just added something really spoke to me about that i feel like there's a lot of people uh, currently um <laughs> in our culture who uh <laughs> very summed up by that uh unfortunate uh, portrayal but it also is just a great example of tom cruise knowing exactly what type of performer he is and what his persona is and being able to weaponize that in such a fun subversive way so I definitely see that in in a lot of these parts but especially especially with tom cruise yeah yeah i mean those scenes are interesting because while they are people performing to an audience we as the audience don't take the perspective of the audience in the movie we're essentially seeing the scene through the eyes of the people performing right if that makes mm-hmm. any sense and then what yeah. they're internalizing so it's it's complex but it's well done now i have to ask i i'm really proud of us that we did not um spend that much time talking about you know the giant frog in the room but i do <laughs> have because this movie is so it has so much and it's kind of silly that in some corners it gets defined by that one kind of audacious thing but knowing mike that you were in basically like a pre premiere uh setting with the person in with the filmmaker in attendance how was it in the room that night when that happened when frogs started falling from the sky 
it, it was pretty awesome. I mean, I, for me personally, it was not a surprise because I was still in my like, let's learn everything about the, you know, I mean, like, you know, Alex, we've talked about Star Trek before and like Star <laughs> Trek Generations where spoilers, Captain Kirk dies, you know, and the Enterprise, uh-huh. you know, crashes. It's like I knew every beat of that thing before going into it because people just didn't care. And since I was trying to get any little piece of paul thomas anderson on a daily basis you know of course i read something somewhere i have no idea where where they're like well there's a scene in this movie where like frogs fall out of the sky and i'm (laughs) like that's weird and then you know in the very first trailer which is an amazing trailer you know he cuts his own trailers and that first trailer where it's like the camera spinning and then stopping on close-ups of yeah. every person and them saying their names. It does that. It goes through the entire cast. And then at the end, you see like a magnolia and it just kind of like goes out of frame. And there's just a frog sitting there looking at the camera. <laughs> so so they did tease it. And the poster is, you know, like frogs in the sky and everything. And, and so there was that tease but I don't think anyone really knew what was happening. And it's like there's that that first moment where it's like, what's going on? And then there's like the big, you know, whatever that comes. And everyone's like, ah, and then it like cuts to Melora Walters in her apartment, I think. Yeah. And when it cuts to that and there's like silence, everyone was just kind of like what's going on now? You know, there's like this kind of like nervous laughter, like what's happening. And then when you see like that wide shot of like the pool and everything, it's just like, Oh my God, you know, like what is going on? Like literally, Oh my God, I guess, you know, maybe. So so yeah, it it was, I mean, everyone was kind of like, and then of course the next question, the question that everyone was asking was like, what does it mean? Why is it in there? You know? And yeah. and that's that's the question which people have been debating ever since, I guess. Yeah, I have to say, there's one thing about it where it's like, oh, you hear frogs are going to fall from the sky. I know that seems so whimsical, right? What they don't tell you is that they're incredibly deadly, right? Like, they're just incredibly <laughs> just destructive force of nature. And I feel like even if you're like, oh, I heard this movie has frogs falling from the sky, it does not prepare you for the reality of frogs falling from the sky. <laughs> Yeah, with, like, frog guts everywhere and everything, yeah. I mean, like, the first time we see it is when um, John C. Riley's character has decided to go back and investigate what he believes is a, a, maybe correctly, is a, well, maybe not in that particular moment, but thinks there's a burglary that uh, Donnie's committing. And um, you feel, like, a little bit on edge, but you're not expecting that. (laughs) You're not expecting (laughs) to... and. Honestly, I was like, I for- totally forgot about the scene of the frog like sliding down his windshield and just seeing like the streaks of blood on it. Just like, oh my gosh. So it's a lot more, um, yeah, just a lot more guts than you would expect. And yet I think that also adds to it not just feeling like this whimsical thing, right? Uh, maybe unlike some of the urban legends that we get in the first part of this, this is something that has happened. Maybe not exactly this way, but it is something that's happened. Like frogs have fallen from the sky. 
And this kind of gives you a much more tactile feel to that, maybe in ways you would not care to <laughs> to experience. Um, so I think that's I think that's very intentional, not just that it happens, but also that it happens in this way, in a way that feels more realistic than maybe you would like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, the other thing that everyone brought up at the time, because people just had to draw the comparisons, they're like, already this movie is basically a riff on shortcuts and that movie ends with the natural disaster which ties all the characters together too so people were certainly you know saying like okay pta but <laughs> I, I i think that that i think they're different and i think they both work and you know whatever i don't know i don't know if you guys are shortcuts well, fans if you haven't seen it check I it out i mean there's there's worse people to be influenced by than robert altman right so That's definitely true <laughs> yeah yeah agreed yeah i haven't seen um uh there's like i have a, quite a few altman blind spots that i hope to rectify um but yeah i know he was i know pta is a, was a big fan of him i believe he was like uh i don't know if he was like on the set but or he was at least standing by just in case something happened when altman was doing prairie home companion yeah <laughs> so yeah. i know that he had kind of a close uh, relationship with him yeah definitely and um he, he was he was there as like a bad because no one knew it at the time but like altman had had a heart transplant right so I, I think for insurance reasons they were like we need to make sure that there's someone who can finish this movie just in case you know so <laughs> so pta was there the whole time and he's like it's amazing because i just sit there in the corner and watch one of the best filmmakers in the world make a movie like what could be better than that yeah. But it would be yeah. like if you were asked to go and sit on the set of a PTA movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do it. I do it. <laughs> it must have been so wild because he has been like on record for a long time saying that he's like that's one of like Robert Altman is one of PTA's like most like influential like filmmaking idols. So the yeah. fact that he was able to have that sort of relationship later in his life and and to have that experience, I can't even imagine what that must have been like for him. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, before we wrap things up, we don't often talk a lot about awards stuff when it comes to film because, you know, it's all kind of ephemera at the end of the day. But I think that it is interesting that out of all of the incredible performances that were on display in this in this ensemble, um, the only one to get a uh, an acting Oscar nomination was Tom Cruise, um, and his the best supporting actor category that year is really wild. I don't know, Justin, a year more into Oscars than even I am, so you're probably well aware of this. But uh, Mike, do you do you know who was in this supporting lineup field? Let's uh, see I, I can I, name I could oh, name at least th three. I could name at least three. Let's see if uh, I, okay. Um, okay. Well, well, the, the other two that I know for sure. Um, Haley Joel Osment uh -huh. and and uh, um, Michael Caine, right? Uh -huh. Was it Michael Clark Duncan? Yeah, Michael Clark Green Duncan Green Mile. Yep. And, and then uh, oh, Justin, no, you know no. the last one? Yes, uh, it was uh, Jude Law for Talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. So <laughs> that is just a really sort of wild set. Of, really runs of, the gamut. 
Yeah, exactly. And then I don't know. I've never seen the Cider House rules, so maybe it's great. I, it is not. It does not have a great reputation for aging particularly well as a film. It didn't have that. But reputation Michael Caine did uh, win a week for... after it came out. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Michael Caine did win that category, and it's just kind of wild to think. I mean, you know, I'm good for Haley Joel. He obviously he he was not going to get it at age seven, um, unfortunately. Uh, but for I'm curious, like Justin, who would you have given it to? In that field in that field wow that's a good question um i well i don't think i would have gone with michael kane <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i won't say i won't say too much about cider house rules but i will say if anyone was going to get nominated from that film i think it should have been delroy lindo instead um i probably i don't know i mean tom cruise like might be my guy i don't know I yeah. just how about, compared to how about some you, of the Mike? other ones. Yeah. I mean, Tom Cruise is far and away the best performance of those five. Uh, if I were to give it to anyone, I'd give it to another person from Magnolia, <laughs> which would probably be Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. To yeah. be honest. Yeah, it was kind yeah. of in the precursor awards that season. Uh, Tom Cruise, Julianne Moore, and Philip Seymour Hoffman were all like given the spotlight in a couple of different. Um, critics and other uh, uh, places, but Tom Cruise ended up being the only one to kind of cross that finish line um, in, uh, when it came to Oscar time. I definitely agree with you. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is probably the best performance in the film, certainly best male performance in the film. I would have loved to, to live in a world where Julianne Moore could have gotten an Oscar for that performance because uh, it was incredible. I do kind of feel like you got to give it... Uh, like. In terms of most acting, Tom Cruise probably wins in a landslide, right? <laughs> but I can't think of... I don't know. Of... Uh, Julianne Moore does a lot of acting in <laughs> well, that, for I mean, sure. That's, yeah. that's true. I I mean, only one of them is doing, like, a little, like, sexy dance in their underwear, though. So, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> the, the acting that Tom Cruise does with his hair alone in this movie is really something. Oh, my gosh, yeah. But I kind of like I can't think of a more iconic uh, film role in this uh, in this group than Jude Law in The Talented Mr. Ripley, I have to say. I that's one of my favorite films from that year. And he's just like the perfect version of a sort of like uh, wastrel, I guess. Right. Is that the term? <laughs> just this like I, like this golden child of like incredibly good looking, incredibly privileged, incredibly vapid, um, who nevertheless has this magnetism about him that everyone needs to be drawn by at all times. I think he just like nails that. And I think that movie falls apart if you don't get someone who could pull that off. And it's like the most beautiful Jude Law has ever been on screen. And that's really saying something, too. So for that alone, he deserves to tattoo. But yeah, Tom Cruise would be up there for me for sure. <laughs> But if it was Philip Seymour Hoffman in the category instead of Tom Cruise, I might be tempted to give it to Philip Seymour Hoffman because he definitely needs more Oscars than he ultimately had, unfortunately. Yeah. And I love that it's such a quiet and and relatively small performance for him. You know, like he's so he often gets a lot of attention for his bigger, more bombastic performances. And even in, you know, um, uh, his previous team up with uh Paul Thomas Anderson in Boogie Nights like that is a very uh, it's a very different performance than maybe his like Punch Drunk Love performance right but it is still big in in a totally opposite way from the other big things that he does but in this movie he's just so he's just so quiet and he ca he creates such a real person who is just you could genuinely believe he's invested in this 
in this kind of like father-son reunion in a way that could have felt really one-dimensional. It could have felt really cheap. It could have been like, well, he's just a nice person and he's trying to do a good thing. But there's so yeah. much underneath that that he's bringing to it. There's this incredible yeah. loneliness and, and, and that's mixing with his compassion in a way that just is really fascinating. And I think it's a really, really great quiet performance in such a bombastic film. Like it's, and it's the kind of thing, like, he, unlike a lot of the other characters, we don't learn a lot about him, like what his life was like, what things he might regret. It's just all there in the performance. Um, yeah. And I think that even though I, I I see what you're saying about it being like a, like a quieter performance, especially compared to some of these other, but he is doing like what his face is doing in this movie, I would say is not quiet. Like it is, it is very, um, um, like all the emotion he's feeling is on his face um he has like one of the biggest reactions to the frogs and one of the funniest react reaction lines to it i think um but you know it's i i i think it's really fascinating just um how this character fits in with the other ones and the fact that it's philip seymour hoffman playing it which is really um really fascinating and i think uh I think PTA has said that, you know, when he was writing the character, you know, which the character's name is Phil, right? He was, of course, writing it for Philip Seymour Hoffman, but he was essentially trying to just write it as Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, that's that's how he is in real life kind of thing, you know? So, that's nice. Kind of interesting. He also kills a dog in this movie, so let's not be too complimentary to him. <laughs> it was an accident, you know, and uh, <laughs> he, he was trying not to. Trying also, to. totally <laughs> forgot about that happening. I was like, what? <laughs> when they start like throwing out long... both two bodies, yeah. I'm like, oh, no. They yeah, really make you wait fun. a long time to find out what happened to that dog. They make you wait until you forget that he ate all those, and then it just like, oh yeah, they both died, and they both get called out in stretchers. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, with no. the same with the same sort of like dignity and everything. Yeah, yes. I mean that's yeah, the thing exactly. which really kind of sells it to me. It's like this incredibly sad Very moment, and yet you get a little chuckle, you know. And I love how all the dogs are named after directors. Oh really? I didn't notice oh, that. Blake, Sydney, you know, I, I forget who else is in there, but yeah, they're all directors. That's great. Hmm. Well, we should probably wrap things up here. I don't know if we had any sort of closing thoughts on the film um, that we wanted to share. Maybe I'll start with you, Mike. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it's one of the best movies ever made. Um, <laughs> and the the thing that I, I love about it is that it it just completely goes for it it's not a movie which is reliant on any one or two things like you know i've got a great script and i've got a great cast and now i can just kind of sit back and let the magic happen like every element you know the the photography the editing the sound design the music like everything just goes for it 100 percent you know and does the best it can possibly do and all of that works in sort of like perfect unison and uh it's i mean a movie unlike any other really i love it yeah speaking of music we haven't even talked about the whole amy man yeah stuff, which is really it, a yeah. great sort of like grace note to the film and such an excellent song i think just really great 
really captures the essence of the film in a way that you don't think a movie, a song, a singular song could possibly contain this movie, and yet it, it does it beautifully. Yeah, for sure. It's great. I, I hadn't um, really known Amy Mann at all prior to that, you know, and obviously, you know, after the movie, I was like, okay, let me listen to all of her other stuff, you know, and I became <laughs> a huge Amy Mann fan. Um, but yeah, it, it's, there aren't many movies that do that. I mean, I guess like The Graduate does it, you know, where they just take like one artist and just sort of go all in and, and make them the voice of the film. And yeah, works perfectly. And she lost the Oscar. What? How? Yeah, she did. I don't understand. She lost it. She lost it to uh, to Justin's favorite, Phil Collins, for Tarzan. You'll be in my heart. <laughs> favorite. <And> I, <laughs> <laughs> Justin is a big Genesis fan, and he has complicated feelings on Phil Collins. Um, <laughs> I will. I'm looking at this, and this is a really stacked year for original song too. Just, I mean, Toy Story 2's Randy Newman, "When She Loved Me," might be better than Amy Mann's "Save Me," but it's kind of it's it's neck and neck. That's they're two great songs that are used so excellently in both of their films. So, but definitely, but you know, Phil Collins, he was gunning for that Oscar, and he and he, I guess, deserved it. I don't know. So, <laughs> who, who was who was the. Uh... The the other indie person who did something for like uh, or was that not I, there was wasn't there some so other... The other the other two nominees were uh, Music of the Heart by Dan, Diane Warren for this okay. film Music of the Heart okay. um, and then uh, the Blame Canada from uh, South Park Bigger Longer and Uncut which is an excellent yeah, song it is yes. a it is a very yes. good song and yeah. we should always remember to blame Canada um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good, but, geez, how does she not win? I, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I think she said, when she lost, I think she said that, you know, Elvis Costello said that if he ever won a Grammy, his acceptance speech would have to be, now I know I suck. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Fair enough. Justin, do you have any final thoughts on this on this you know, incredible not, epic of a film? I know it's like this feels like the kind of thing. Like I I totally understand why this is the film that is like dissected and you know um, discussed to death. But it feel it honestly does feel like there's so much in it that you could spend eternity talking about it and still not come to any kind of definite conclusion about. Um, yeah, and that's you know can't say that for a lot of movies and. While this is like, you know, I I would say it's toward the <laughs> it may be my least favorite PTA film, but that I think is just a reflection of how much I love PTA. Like, I still think this is a really good movie. So I think that just speaks to the fact that I don't think he's actually made any bad movies, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where I can totally understand um, for you, Mike, as well as anyone else, I understand why this could be a beloved film. It's not that for me, but I I do get it on some level. Yeah, and for me, it's 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 right there in the middle of his uh, filmography for me. Like I definitely, I think that there will be blood and, and Boogie Nights really speak so well to the two sides of of Paul Thomas Anderson. 
Um, and so it's hard for me to, to put it ahead of those. And, and you know, The Master is a, is a film that I just have really a special fondness for just because those performances yeah. are just like Titanic. And and just like, you know, that scene in the desert is just always going to be with me and kind of like doing the, the <laughs> driving the car. Um, but yeah, it's right there. It, it's to say it's it's not my favorite. Paul Thomas Anderson is is, is definitely uh, not at all an insult. But instead of trying to sum up this film and give a final thought i want to give a a special shout out and maybe um something exciting for mike which is to say that if you want more uh melora walters uh because you're looking for a good role for her you should be watching uh the hulu original series pen 15 where she plays uh one of the mothers on the show um the the series for those of you who may not know is um there's uh, these two adult actresses who have decided to create a series um, that takes place in the early 2000s about their life in middle school where they play um, themselves as middle schoolers surrounded by actual um, middle schoolers. And it sounds like it should be terrible and cringy and not work, but it's actually kind of a remarkable achievement in drama and comedy. Um, and uh, Melora Walters plays one of the uh, main characters' mothers who is going through a pretty um, messy and upsetting divorce. And especially in the second season, she is just incredible incredible like truly excellent like break your heart good on the show as she kind of like navigates this complicated relationship with a daughter who is kind of um resentful of her for letting the marriage fall apart even though ultimately um it's the the dad is the one who's like a total piece of shit so (laughs) it like it really it's very layered and complicated and she is so excellent in it and despite the fact that she is acting against her this adult woman playing a uh, a 13 year old girl um so it's really it's a really remarkable performance and she's excellent in it mike have you seen this at all no i've had everyone keep on telling me to watch it you know my my sister is like hey this show's great you gotta see it my boss has been telling me to watch it <laughs> if 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 anyone had said like oh melora walters is in it i'd be like oh well then i guess i better watch it but yeah. you know didn't do a good job of selling it, I guess. Well, so now I'll watch it. Yeah. Now they know, now you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I guess we'll wrap it up there for now. But let's talk about uh, where we can find everyone. And I'll start with our guest, uh, Mike. Where is the best place to find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, my website, filmdamagepod.com, where we do a show called Film Damage. We haven't really done much lately just because we've been busy, but uh, we do um, well, commentaries for every episode of, of Star Trek, every new episode of Star Trek. Um, but then we also do a show um, where we uh, take a look at time travel movies and explain how or how the time travel does not work how it works or does not work you know the the actual time travel in the movie and then we also have a a show on there where we uh talk about um our experience working as projectionists uh for like a decade and um sort of this the you know day-to-day uh activities that that would go on in the booth so so check those out and you can also find me on the nerdparty.com doing a show called training montage uh, where we uh, look at sports movies. So, oh, very cool. Nice. Yeah, that's funny. I used to work at as a um, as an employee at a movie theater, um, and I remember like 
I didn't really like get to know any of the projectionists. They were always like very shady and like like very kind of mysterious characters. And they would sometimes come down and then go back, you know, into their tower. So <laughs> I'm just yep. thinking about that. Um, yeah, uh, that's how was... <laughs> my my wife worked there, too. And, you know, like that's how we met. And she's like, yeah, you were just you guys were just weird, right? Like everybody just thought you guys were weird and, you know, standoffish. And I'm like, I guess we were. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, you can find me uh, at thecinemaverick.com. That's my website. I'm also on Letterboxd at the Cinemaverick. And uh, as Alex mentioned, I am a big Genesis fan. And if you want to hear my thoughts as well as my co-host Noah's thoughts and uh, Luke Martin, who is another contributor to the pop break, our thoughts, our collective thoughts on Genesis. Uh, it is a podcast called pod on the rooftops. This is on the popbreak.com. We went through every single one of their albums and talked about some of our favorite songs are not favorite songs. Um, some of our favorite lyrics and musical moments. So uh, that was a lot of fun. If you are interested in that. Um, but uh, let's end with you, Alex. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Media Thinkings. Uh, you can follow the show at Cinema Joes on Twitter and subscribe to us on all the major podcast platforms. Uh, in addition to my work with Cinema Joes, you can also follow my work on thepopbreak.com, where I am the podcast editor. Uh, we have a couple of different podcast feeds up right now. We have Pop Break TV, which features a bunch of really fun uh, monthly and weekly shows on reality shows, um, uh, lots of news and uh, anniversaries and season roundups and all that all that stuff. Um, Mike was nice enough to come on uh, last year to discuss uh, Star Trek Discovery, or I guess that was early this year, right? It feels like such a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, season four starts up uh, next month. Very exciting. So he was on Goodbye to All That, um, and that was really fun. Um, in addition to uh, Pop Break TV, another feed that we have is uh, the Breakcast, which features uh, podcasts about wrestling and movies and music. And we also have our flagship show, Socially Distanced, which comes out every Friday, talking about the kind of big movies and TV and music stuff happening uh, that week. So definitely check out all of uh, that stuff. Uh, if you don't want to subscribe to those pods, you can just head on over to thepopbreak.com and click on podcasts and uh, see all the latest episodes. Well, thank you for that. Um, and we want to thank, well, first I want to thank our guest, Mike, for, for joining us on, on this episode. This was a lot of fun. We hope to have you back again at some point, if you would be willing to come back. Yeah, thanks for having me. We can talk about Licorice Pizza when that becomes my new favorite movie. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes. Can't wait for that. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, until then, uh, this is Justin Mancini for the Cinema Joes signing off.